Okay, now if you've got a copy of the scriptures, take that. We're going to go to Proverbs 16. Proverbs chapter 16, if you've got a copy of the scriptures, welcome to our online uh, church family as well. Thanks for being there and joining us there. Uh, it is a great day. After the gathering is over, we're going to have some refreshments in the lobby for Chuck and Billy to honor them. Also, there is a, a mat for a picture where you can write on the mat. We're going to take a picture with them and the elders after the service today. And then that picture will be developed and put in that mat. So we want you to be able to write on the mat your thoughts. There's also a basket for cards, and there's some blank cards there. If you want to write them a note, you can do that. So be sure and uh, participate in all of that before you go. We're in a series called Fully Faithful, and the idea is that um, the only kind of powerful Christianity to live is a Christianity fully devoted to Jesus. Like compartmentalized faith is never going to transform your life. And Jesus as your mentor, Jesus as your advice giver, Jesus as your counselor, uh, he's all of that. But if that's all he is, you're going to have a limited capacity to overcome. And we live in a world with lots of challenges. And so what we're learning and recognizing is that the only way to prevail in our faith is to go all in, to be a fully faithful follower of Jesus. And what that means is to have the work of God go deeper than our brain. We need the work of God to go into our soul. We need to integrate our faith into every part of who we are. That's what we're learning how to do. And we're uh, practicing that through one theme verse in this conversation and then walking through uh, a passage in Proverbs 16. So if you are willing and able to stand for the reading of God's word, we will read these passages and then we're going to dive right in here and continue to move forward. Now, John 6, 29, you shouldn't have to turn there. My goal is for you to memorize that verse. And in John 6, they asked Jesus, these religious leaders, hey, what are the works that God requires of us? Like, what does God want us to do? And he says in verse 29, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. Now, I want you to memorize that verse because this is the simplicity of our task as Jesus people. What does God want from you? What does he want from me? He wants me to believe in the one he sent to believe that my sins are gone, that my condemnation's been nailed to the cross, that transformation is taking place, that he is with me and in me, that he has my, secure, my eternal uh, uh, hand, uh, future in hand, that he has my temporal future in hand, that, that I just believe him. And most of the time, we are practicing agnostics. We profess faith in him, but we often live as if we're not really sure we can trust him. And so this is the work, to go, to go fully faithful, to really believe to the core of my being in the one that he has sent. And now we're in Proverbs 16, and we're going to read verses 1, 2, 3, and 9. And this chapter, this chunk of Proverbs is walking us through some spiritual disciplines that we need to integrate into our lives to help take that work of God deeper into who we are. So here we go. To humans belong the plans of the heart. But from the Lord comes the proper answer of the tongue. All a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. Then verse 9. In their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. That is the word of God. You can be seated. Thanks so much. We're in this world where we're trying to build kind of a utopian culture. 
It's really fascinating to me, and COVID was the great accelerator, where people are having uh, kind of a, a crammed-in progression of thought at a high rate of speed. And so uh, it, this has always been true that we're trying to build a utopian world without God, but we're trying to figure it out. So you have young people, for example, who say that massive wealth people cannot be trusted. There's something, there's something fundamentally wrong with having 1% of wealth you know, all this wealth tied up in 1% of the population. Uh, others are saying, you know, maybe communism is a legitimate thing or socialism. These are great ideas. And if they could, we could just pull them off, we could have maybe a utopian world or maybe no democracy. Some people say, well, capitalism. And one of the things we do is we demonize our opponents. And so uh, rather than, you know, have real conversation uh, while we try to figure out how to make the world a better place, we demonize each other. So conservatives believe that liberals wake up every morning dreaming of ways to ruin our country and to destroy families. And liberals think that conservatives wake up every day trying to figure out how to ruin this country and uh, take it where it shouldn't go. And the reality is that all human beings are trying their best to figure out how do we figure out this problem? How do we solve this problem? And so we, we have things that we try. We have you know, different views about law enforcement. And so we think, well, maybe if we have a kinder, gentler cop, or if we don't allow, like in the state I just moved from in Washington, they don't allow uh, police to have pursuit of criminal activity because it's a risk to the civilians around it. So, uh, so you know, the, this, the thought, maybe we change the way we do law enforcement because there have been problems in law enforcement, and maybe there's a way we could solve that. Other people uh, look at education. We need to change the way we educate. Talking about... Um, Addiction. Do we set up safe places for addicts to take drugs in a safe environment so that they won't go out and overdose accidentally and kill themselves? Is that helpful to move them toward recovery? Or do we criminalize drug activity and let's lock up every drug offender because that'll stimulate uh, maybe a turn of action in their life? Uh, identity. Man, children are confused and so some people believe, well, what you do for your kids is you don't give them any prescribed boundaries of what a boy is or a girl is, and you just let them just become whoever they're going to be because that freedom lets them not feel guilty or ashamed of some way that they're not like other boys or not like other girls. Or no, it's a better strategy to give real clear boundaries. This is what a boy is, and this is what a girl is. And you can see the confusion, and everybody's demonizing each other about their actions, uh, and their thoughts on these matters. There's this idea of operant, uh, I think it's called operant uh, behavior. And this is the idea that you reward the behavior you want more of, and you uh, punish the behavior you want less of. And now they're messing around with the whole operant idea. How do we stimulate more behaviors we want in our culture? And how do we discourage behaviors we don't want? And we're trying all manner of things. And this has been going on, like I said, forever. And we should try to solve problems. What's the problem with all that? Well, the problem is we've left God completely out of the conversation. So the problem with trying to pursue this utopian idea is that we're doing it without God. I was thinking on the way to church this morning that today millions of people, probably closer to a billion, will gather in places of worship and there will be scientists and educators and artists and there will be 
civil leaders, and there will be business owners, and there will be parents that gather in houses of worship, and they let God inform how to be who they, and, and innovation and creativity and dreams ought to come out of the body of Christ, but it all starts with God, because when we center ourselves with God, he can release in us this supernatural ability to actually gain traction on global transformation, like God wants to do that. But if we start without him and we leave him out of the equation, this becomes a problem. In Genesis chapter 11, these people get together and they, in a, in a place, they decide to build a city with a tower that goes all the way to heaven. And they said, let's build this city, verse 4 of Genesis 11. Let's build this city and build a tower so that we will never be scattered across the earth and disconnect from each other. And God, of course, says, whoa, 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 whoa. And if you read that chapter, God says, if they accomplish this, nothing will be impossible for them. Is God against innovation, problem-solving, ideas? No, he's against them doing that without him. And rather than flowing from him, it's flowing from itself. I don't know if you've ever read the Humanist Manifesto. Humanist Manifesto is a fascinating document, and if you're anywhere north of 30 years old, you should read the Humanist Manifesto, 15 tenets of their faith, and it tells you basically how uh, our children have been educated, and it's a way of seeing the world, a way of thinking about problem solving, a way of thinking about human potential. If we could just actualize all the human potential, we could solve all the problems in the world, and the answer is not really because... The problem with every government system, the problem with every idea is that it's handled by humans. <laughs> and we need God in the middle of that. So Genesis 11, God scatters them, confuses their language. It's called the Tower of Babel because their languages are confused. But then you see in Acts chapter 2, when God pours out his Holy Spirit and births the church, there are people in that city from every nation and every tongue on earth and they begin to speak with other tongues. They speak a language no one's ever heard, but all these people hear in their own languages the praises of the glory of God. So God solves the disconnected problem his way, bringing people back together. So this is, what, this is the difference. I call this a contrast between uh, ironic idolatry and full devotion to Christ. The irony of all of our efforts at Utopia is that they blow up in our face kind of over and over and over again. Like, when are we going to get the idea that these ideas aren't working? And it makes me think of a song that Alanis Morissette, uh, Alanis Morissette, uh, isn't it ironic? Uh, you know, a guy's 98 years old, wins the lottery and dies the next day. You have 10,000 spoons when all you need is a knife. She says, I met the man of my dreams and then met his beautiful wife. Uh, isn't it ironic? And the irony is that as we trust in human capacity, as we try to solve all of our problems without God, what it reveals is this missed it that much irony, sometimes missed it that much, because we are not starting with God. And confession time, let's all tell the truth, shame the devil, this is what we all do. You got a problem to solve, you immediately go to, how can I solve this problem? 
You don't immediately go to, Lord, how are you going to solve this problem? You don't immediately go to, Lord, what are you going to do with this thing going on in my world? You immediately go to, I, let me just confess for me, I won't confess for you. I go immediately to, what am I going to do? Who can help me? What am I going to do? And so this puts us in this place of, at the end of the day, idolatry. Is God angry that we're leaning on our own wisdom? Is he opposed to us having creativity and innovation and plans? No. He wants that to flow from our relationship with him rather than be the starting place where we then ask God, hey, God, would you mind blessing this really great plan I just came up with to solve my problem? Instead, hey, Lord, I'm in you. I'm with you. I trust you. Now, Lord, release by your Holy Spirit creativity. Bring around me the people I need. Uh, show me the path to the resources I need. Lord, you lead me. That's faith in Christ versus this uh, deal. So here's the, here's the big idea for today. Your heart only has room for one God. This is, we've been, you know, as we go through these uh, spiritual disciplines and a reminder, a spiritual discipline is a, it's not just you cranking up your willpower and doing better. It's a spiritual discipline. It's a discipline of the spirit where you're saying, hey, Lord, I'm going to pay attention to this. Holy Spirit, help me to move this direction. And so we started with the spiritual discipline of alignment where Proverbs 16.1 says, to humans belong the plans of the heart, but from the Lord comes the proper answer. So, Lord, I have these plans in my heart, but I want to align them with your proper answer. So the spiritual discipline of alignment. The second one was the spiritual discipline of motivation, of motive, of singular motive. Because he says all of a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by God. So I need a singular motive. Which one do I need? I need the singular motive of Jesus. I do always that which pleases the Father. So I a disciple of Jesus says, I got one motive. And that motive is I want to walk with God. I want to please the Father. And I want the Father to live his life in me and through me. This changes the way you approach everything. Now, I don't know. It's a long kind of introduction. And I hope I haven't lost you. But here's what I want you to know. Your impulse from birth is to solve your problems without God. It's just your impulse. And uh, at the end of the day, that's idolatry. God is not, uh, you know, you look at the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, that doesn't mean that you can have other gods. They just can't go first. It means you shall have no other gods in my presence, like no other gods. And we know that there are no other gods, no capital G gods. There's only one. But there are lots of lower G, lowercase g gods. And you know what your gods are by what you look to when you're afraid. To whom do, who do you call when you get the crisis news? Is, where do you look? Where do you look to for solutions? What calms you down when you are anxious? These are all indicators of what we're leaning into to comfort us, to calm us, to provide for us, to give our life direction. Am I a better person if I make a certain wage? If I'm a, am I a better person if I win versus lose? Am I a better person if I'm liked rather than alone? And you have all these matrices that you're measuring your sense of self, and they're all going to mislead you unless they flow out of 
I am a blood-bought son or daughter of the living God, deeply loved by God, known by name, redeemed by His grace, anchored in His work in my life, and He is my life. And so this is where we have to get because a Christianity without that doesn't produce the fruit, the guidance, the power, the transformation that you're longing for. And so a lot of Christians just keep banging around clumsily, frustrated, because we won't root in this simple, singular place. So today, my heart only has room for one God, and it shall be Him. So this is going to be a monumental decision we have to make and learn how to walk there. So let's go back to the verses, verse 3 of Proverbs 16 and verse 9. Commit to the Lord whatever you do. So we're talking about the spiritual discipline of commitment, the spiritual discipline of commitment, that my life belongs to God. It belongs to him alone. It belongs to him in entirety. It is completely his. That's where my life goes. It's committed to him. So commit to the Lord, whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. Then verse nine, in their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. Let's talk about these words, commit and establish. So the word commit is the Hebrew word in Proverbs called gulal, and it means to roll away or to entrust or to transfer. In Joshua, God says to Joshua, I have rolled away your shame and your slavery to the Egyptians. I've rolled it away. So I've committed your shame and your slavery away, and now you are free. When God says, I don't want you to have any idols, it's not like he's got an ego problem and he needs you to just worship him. He's not like the most insecure girlfriend you ever had who just needs you to always be the center of her thing, okay? Girls, I don't know, narcissistic dude. Uh, we all meet, you know, you meet people like that who they can't survive if they're not the center of your world, right? That's not what God is like. Here's what God is like. I wired you a certain way and I put in you an impulse to be with God. The reason you crave for utopia is because I birthed you in paradise. I created you for perfection. You're frustrated because perfection is gone, and it's gone because of idolatry. It's gone because of rebellion against God. It's gone because of leaning in your own power. So I refuse to allow you to have idols because idols are going to do nothing but take you further away from me and away from the life you were designed by God to live. And so I need you to destroy your idols. Like, you can't play with them. You can't dabble with them. And so what does it mean to commit my ways to the Lord? It means to roll away whatever I'm doing to God, to transfer it to God. Uh, it doesn't mean to negotiate with God. A lot of us love to negotiate with God. You ever done that, negotiate with God? God, if you, I can't tell you how many times as a pastor, honestly, it's embarrassing to say this. I'm going to say 20 times in the last 30 years, I've had somebody say, hey, I'm working on an invention I've got this investment. It was cryptocurrency, the latest. Got this cryptocurrency thing going. I got this thing. I'm about to sell my business. And when I do, boy, the church is going to be stacked with cash. We're going to redo the building. We'll, we'll you know, and, and, I, and I know they're negotiating with God. And they're hoping I'll join in on the negotiation, right? And, uh, and then because, uh, you know, you fool me when I'm a young guy, when I'm an older guy, you get wiser. You start asking the, the finance office, hey, what's their giving like? Zero every time. 
So they don't give what they have yet, but boy, Lord, if you will parlay my dream, if you'll get me that lottery ticket, boy, then I'm going to come up, I'm going I'm to wow the world with my generosity for God, and they're negotiating. God doesn't play, let's make a deal. God plays deal or no deal. I'm the Lord, commit your ways to me, and I will establish your path, deal or no deal. I am the Lord, entrust your heart fully to me, surrender everything you have to me, I will take care of you, I will carry you through the storms, I will protect you, I'll provide for you, I'll never leave you, deal or no deal. And we go, well, I like that deal, but... Commit all your ways to the Lord. And what's he going to He's going to establish. So let's walk through really quickly three things this means. For us to commit to the Lord, this spiritual discipline of commitment, what does it mean? First of all, commitment is a whole person decision. And for this, I want you to think about Deuteronomy chapter 6, where it's what the Jews call the Shema. The Shema is the most important prayer in the Jewish faith. It is prayed to start the day and end the day. And it goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. This is what commitment looks like, to love him with the whole person, not with my Sundays, not with my uh, 10 minutes in the morning to get on my knees and pray, to love him with everything I've got, my mind, my imagination. I love this idea. God wants to restore you and restory your imagination. Because what happens is you go through life and you have a narrative you're telling yourself about how you got there. And you have a narrative about where God was and all that. And you've got a narrative about whether you're a victim or whether you're responsible. And you've got a narrative about what your future is. And these narratives drive your behaviors. And God says, hey, I want to restore you back to original condition. I want to transform you. And I want to rewrite your narrative. I want to restory your life because you're telling the story wrong. I've been there from the beginning. I've never left you. And I've redeemed you and I've forgiven you. Some of you are wallowing in guilt because you keep restoring your failures and believing that God continues to punish you for the failures you had 10 years ago. And God is saying, you're, you're wasting this time because I'm not continuing to punish you. I'm restoring your future. So we commit to God. We give him everything. We love him with our heart, soul, body, and strength. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 has been a, a verse that has come up every week in this conversation. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding, but in all of your ways, your emotional ways, your thinking ways, your verbal ways, your finance ways, your sexual ways, with all of your time use, with all your entertainment, in all of your ways, acknowledge God, and he will. He will direct your path. How about Romans 12, 1 and 2? Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your body. Now we're talking about our bodies too. As, in, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now we have body and mind in the same conversation. 
then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. You're going to be on fire, man, because your body's given to God. Your mind is given to God. Your heart is given to God. I don't know, I, I don't know how to help someone get this, but I wish if I, could, if, I could, if I had one skill, I would bottle full commitment to God and just have people drink it. It's, it, it, it changes everything. It is life to start with him, finish with him, be with him, anchor in him. Everything flows from there. Point one of your life, I belong to God. The rest is point two through whatever because point one never changes. I belong to God. Commit whatever you do to the Lord. Okay? Commit to the Lord. So uh, commitment is a whole person. It is not compartmentalized. It's your thoughts, your words, your actions, your emotions. It's your time. It's your money. It's your family. It's your marriage or relationships. All of it. It's the whole deal. Rolled over to God. Placed in God's lap. Entrusted to God. See the difference there between I'm worried about my ex. I'm worried about my house. I'm worried about money. I'm worried about my financial future. I'm worried that my kids will ever go to school. I'm worried that I'm going to make the team. I'm worried that I'm going to meet the right person. I'm worried that this divorce has labeled me for the rest of my life. Entrust all that to God. Like, like give it to God. Roll it over to God and entrust it to him. And what's he going to do? He's going to establish your path. So establish is to pre-plan in advance, to firm up, to make permanent. So God's going to take care of that for you as you do this devotion. So commitment number one is that it's a whole body thing. Now second, it's an every action adventure. So what commit whatever you do to the Lord. So we're talking about every action, whatever you do. Now this is helpful in a lot of fronts because um, uh, I have this graphic in my head all the time now as I talk to people because we do have so much stress in our world. I mean, uh, please tell me I'm not the only one that is like slamming into waves of stress and uh, issues. And uh, to, to, uh, to the, the two circles I see in my head are things I can control and things I cannot control. I'm learning to live in the, in the present right here. Okay, commit to the Lord whatever you do, but don't waste your time doing what you cannot do. So if it's in the I have no control zone, you have to leave it alone. Imagine your world if all you focused on was the things you actually could control. And then you commit that to the Lord and start to actually put action to the areas where you can actually make a difference. I think maybe from an energy percentage standpoint, maybe 75, 80% of our energy is being wasted on things we cannot control. Grieving that somebody feels the way they do, grieving that somebody did whatever they did, grieving that I landed in this particular place, grieving something that I have no control over. If we put our energy, Lord, here's what I can control. God calls us to be people of action. He calls us to lean in and do stuff. So 
Trusting God isn't sitting in the recliner with the Nintendo controller in your lap or Xbox or whatever it is. I've never been a gamer, so whatever your game uh, system is. It's, that's not waiting on God. Think about this. Who's the hardest working person at the restaurant? The waiter. And so those who wait upon the Lord renew their strength. And so, uh, man, whatever you do, commit it to the Lord. Whatever you do. So now as you start to plan actions, because you're not supposed to be inactive, you're going to take actions. What actions do I take? Well, I'm going to take the ones I can commit to the Lord. You're in a frustrated marriage, somebody at work around the water cooler, opposite sex is really, man, they're stroking your ego. They're making you feel good. Turn and run because whatever you do, commit that to the Lord. And the Lord is not going to say, you know what? You got a bad first one. Let's just go get another one. So commit your ways to the Lord. It's a whole action, every action. Last, it's an open-handed expectancy. Commitment to God is an open-handed expectancy. And that's verse 9. I want you to see this. In their hearts, human plans their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. That means that I'm supposed to come to God with a lot of expectancy in my heart. Lord, we're in this together. My life belongs to you. You're going to do something awesome But the chances of you knowing exactly what awesome thing God is going to do and exactly the way he's going to do it are virtually nil. And so if you get hung up on God, you're going to do this miracle and you're going to do it this way, this way, this way, this way, this way. Then you're going to miss God. You're going to have disappointments, whatever. So it's an open-handed expectancy, letting God order the steps. That verse 9, I memorized it in King James. Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. That's the King James version of that verse. And in three different ministry scenarios of my life, planting two churches, I felt like God had given me very crystal clear ideas. And so I had a plan. And I'm working the plan. And it turned out nothing like what I was expecting because it turned out way better Because I was anchored in Christ, holding my hands open rather than clinging. And he did things entirely differently than I thought. Think about Moses believes that his life was spared. All the children, boys were supposed to be killed. He grows up believing my life was spared so that I could deliver the Jews from the Egyptians. I've been given this place of prominence in the palace So what does he do? He sees an Egyptian hurting a Hebrew slave and he kills him and buries his body in the sand. And he thinks, here we go. We're off to the races now. They're going to know that I'm for them and I'm going to rise up and I'm going to lead the children of Israel to deliverance. Instead, he has to run for his life 40 years in the wilderness. And when he comes back, God says, hey, I'm going to set the people free. Step one, go to Pharaoh And tell him, let my people go or God's going to open up a can of whoop butt on you and you're not going to like how this goes. And the first thing that happens is Pharaoh says, you guys are lazy, make make the same quota of bricks, but we're not providing you straw anymore. And things get worse. Sometimes when you're obedient to God, things might get worse first. But that's why you stay anchored and rooted. Lord, I'm with you because many are the plans in a man's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. He's ordering your steps. He's establishing your steps. You have to trust that even when it looks like this thing is going the wrong way. How many of us would have given up way earlier 
in that story. Man. All right, so here's your response today. I have, I have two simple responses for you. We have prepared for you a little card at the prayer tables. It's called a quit claim deed. A quit claim deed is a legal document where the owner legally surrenders all ownership of a certain uh, asset, typically land, and deeds it over to another owner with a signature. I release all rights and ownership of this property to you. It's a quit claim deed. And I want you to pray about today, quit claim deeding your life to God. We all grow in our faith and incrementally and we're learning as we go, but here's the bottom line, okay? Let me just tell you the truth. If he doesn't own all of you, you are circling the wagon around the mountains way more times than you have to. And it's slow and it's painful. Just sign the deed. So here's what it says. On October 22nd, 2023, I, a blank for you to write in your name, hereby deed all of my life, family, possessions, and future to God. I no longer own any of it and will operate as a steward of the Lord who now owns it all. This is step one to the most powerful life you've ever lived. Give your life entirely to God. Repentance is a word we don't like, but it's a beautiful word. It's a powerful word. It just means to stop going this way, to turn around and go this way. And so repentance is the starting point for all of this. Lord, I repent for my ironic idolatry. I repent that I think my ideas are better than yours. I repent that I keep leaning into my own solutions. I repent that I keep looking for my own answers. I repent that you're the last resort. I guess all I can do is pray now. I repent that you're my last resort instead of my anchor. I repent for all of that and I repent for owning my life. I repent for thinking it's mine. I repent for treating possessions like they're mine and my family like they're mine and my friends and my... I repent for it, Lord, and I deed it to you. Here's my life. Friends, that is day one of transformation right there. Day one. And so I'm going to invite you to do that. Now, I didn't put them on your seats because I want you to have to take a step to do that. You have to want to do that. And so if you do, man, may the Lord bless you as you pray over that and take that action. Step two for us always is bless your oikos. The scriptures teach that God is surrounding you with people that need to find their way to his grace. We say that God has got eight to 15 people that he is strategically and supernaturally placing in your life so that you can show Jesus to them. And your job is to bless them, believe for them in prayer, listen to them, eat meals with them, serve them, and when it's appropriate, share your story with them. I want you, I want you to be thinking about your oikos. There's so much action God wants to do right there in your life and your traffic patterns. And all you have to do is open your eyes and pay attention. Okay, so uh, I'm going to pray for you. And then you're going to be free to respond. Worship team is going to lead us. You can go to the prayer table. There will be prayer volunteers there. You can just grab a quick claim deed. Fill that out at your convenience. That is for you to keep, for you to put somewhere where you see it, to remind you when you start reaching for your own life again. Wait, 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 wait. I forgot. I deeded everything to God. Lord, what would you have me do? I have a singular motive. I want to do that which pleases the Father. I want the spiritual discipline of commitment. Holy Spirit, help me stay committed to that place. My life is not my own. Okay? Let's pray.
Lord, I'm profoundly grateful for your grace. And I pray, Lord, forgive me. And it's an ongoing thing. I'm going to have to ask this prayer many, many times for the rest of my life. Forgive me for taking the steering wheel back in my life. Forgive me for taking ownership back. Forgive me for treating things, people, scenarios, anxiety, and issues as if I owned them. Forgive me for being the global operations director or the G-O-D in my own life. I want to surrender all of it to you. So, Lord, I ask you, would you take my life in your hands? Would you own it? Would you possess it? Would you fill it? I roll away my plans and dreams into your lap. I entrust all that I commit to. I, I entrust all that I'm doing, all that I'm thinking and hoping to you. And I ask you to prepare it and establish it and achieve it and grow it and be with me every step of the way. Lord, would you help us? We love you and we want to love you more. Teach us what it means to believe in the one you have sent. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.